You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone of willy or clone of pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you. And they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone of willy or clone of pussy kit right now, head over to cloneawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember... This is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey Andrew, how are you? Hey Kristen, I'm okay, but if I'm really honest, I haven't been doing super great lately. I'm kind of super, really, really down. Oh no, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you and I talk all the time, we talk every day, and you know I've been thinking about going to therapy, but I've been to Mm -hmm. therapists before, and I'm afraid that a therapist wouldn't understand all my disability stuff. And you know how much I love talking about disability, right? Yeah, I hear you have like a whole podcast about it. Right? I mean, yeah. I talk about it all the time, everywhere. And I'm just yeah. worried that I don't want to explain to a therapist, like, what is ableism? What is disability? Like, I don't want to do that before we get into my stuff, you know? Yeah, that's fair. You shouldn't have to like fully educate a therapist before starting a therapeutic process. And I think that's really hard because Honestly, you deserve support from someone who gets it. You get it. You're my best. You, like you're my best friend. You get it. What do you think I should do? I mean, I think you should find a disability-informed support person to help you work through this. If anyone listening to this is interested, I'm actually offering disability-informed support for forty dollars per session. Whoa, whoa, forty dollars a session? That's super cheap. The last time I checked, one session was like over a hundred bucks but we can still talk about disability stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. Like everything from like physical changes in your body to ableism and exploring internalized ableism, grief that comes with disability, chronic pain, all that good, terrible stuff that so many of us live experience. It's so fun, isn't it? It's like so great. It's the best, yes. And I I know you also do, you also offer support for non-disabled people too, right? Yeah, I do support for able-bodied and non-disabled people as well because really, I mean, everyone gets sick or experiences illness or vulnerability at some time in their life. And while 
that's a different experience than living with chronic disability. I think it's all very related. And if you're going through any sort of life change where you're having grief related to bodily change or body difference, I'm more than happy to support you with that as well. I think everybody deserves and needs affordable support. I think that it's such a great thing you're offering and I want to make sure that all the lovely listeners of Disability After Dark can reach you. How do they do that? Okay, well, right now they can reach me by email. It's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N dot Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S one zero at gmail.com. And you can email me there to ask me questions or uh, let me know if you'd like more information or you can go straight to booking a support session with me. Awesome. Well, I, I can't I can't speak any more highly of this amazing thing. I'm so excited that there's finally disability-centered support for stuff like ableism and for stuff like internalized ableism and all the stuff that we go through that we never get to talk about. And thank you so much for offering it and for putting yourself out there, Kristen. Aw, thanks, Andrew. I hope you feel better soon. Me too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm coming at you with a titillating reminder that pre-sales for the world's first disability-driven sex toy, the Bump and Joystick, are open right now. You can go to www.getbumpin.com. That's www.getbumpin.com. And you can pre-order your very own Bump and Joystick right now, or... You can get a gift card for that deliciously disabled person in your life right now. Do it now. Go get it and be part of this amazing new innovation in sex tech. Thanks, friends. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm your host, your disabled disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza, or your disabled daddy, if you will. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this episode started, shall we? First things first, I want to let you know that I had a look at our Patreon supporters, and we are so close to 100 Patreon supporters. We are sitting at 95. We lost a few over the last few months because maybe money is tight. We are in a pandemic. That's totally fine. But if you want to help us push through to 100 patrons and for your Patreon pledge, you'll get the show one day early, completely ad-free, and a special shout-out on the air from me, and it'll go something like this. Let's say your name was Mark. Jones. I would say, Mark Jones, thank you so much for your pledge. You have me jonesing for more. Thank you for pledging. Something like that. So if you want to get a 
weird, awkward, sexy shout out from me on the air, consider going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledging as little as $1 a month or as much as $5 a month or more or yearly amount if that works for your budget because I want to make this as accessible as possible. Um, if you want to pledge, you can go there and, and pledge if you're able to or leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast because I like knowing what this show means to you. So let me know why the show is important to you by supporting both financially or through a review if you're able to. As the, the showrunner, the editor, the producer, all the things of this show, I would really, really appreciate it. Thanks, friends. But now let's get to the show today. Oh yeah, just before the show today, I hope you enjoyed the bonus content that I dropped on Wednesday for you where I talked to my friend Maisha Eloni, and I love doing bonus stuff like that. I have episodes from within the last year that I haven't released yet that maybe I'll be dropping in um, as bonus episodes when I can't fit them in to the weekly schedule, but I appreciate all of you that keep guesting and keep wanting to guest, and thank you again for your patience as I am the only one running the ship here, so I appreciate you being really flexible and being able to change dates around. And I, it means a lot to me that you would stick around as I figure out how to do this all on my own. So thank you for wanting to be a guest, for being guests, for always touch sharing your stories with me with vulnerability and honesty. It means a lot. And let's do that. Do more of that right now. On the show today, I sit down with three really cool people that I'm excited to tell you all about that are doing really cool things in the disability justice space. I sit down with Emma, Sarika, and Melissa of the Harvard Undergraduate Disability Justice Club, better known as Hudge, and they share with me, you know, just how inaccessible Harvard actually is for them. And I would think, you know, Harvard being one of the biggest schools in the world that we all know about, I thought that Harvard would be super accessible, and they sit down with me to very quickly dispel the myth that Harvard is actually really accessible and why they started the Harvard Undergraduate Disability Justice Club, or Hudge, is because they found so much inaccessibility on campus and they wanted to change that. They also wanted to build community through this club. And I talk with each of them about their experiences with disability justice, and we talk about ways that Harvard has been, you know, really inaccessible for them and some of the experiences they've had trying to navigate that and ways in which they think that Harvard could do more to be more accessible. But I love sitting down with them. They're all undergraduates at Harvard wanting to make a change in the disability space. And I really, really enjoyed having this chat with them. I think it's so important for the next generation of disabled folks to be given a voice. And these three young people have certainly found their voice and found their mission around disability justice. So I loved chatting with them. I love chatting with Emma, Sarika, and Melissa. And you're going to hear our interview all about Hudge right now on Disability After Dark. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you, Harvard undergraduate disability justice folks? How are you? Good. Doing good. Yay, I'm so excited to have all of you here, and thank you for taking the time to chat with me and wanting to chat with me. Um, this is, I haven't done, like, 
a panel-y type podcast in a while. So this is super cool. And I'm so excited all of you are here. Um, so, so excited. I want to talk all about disability justice at Harvard. But first, I would love for each of you to introduce yourselves to the Disability After Dark audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. Let's start with Emma. Hey, um, hi, my name is Emma, um, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a freshman at Harvard um, and I'm planning to you know, major in sociology and hopefully eventually um, go into law specifically involving disability justice. Um, as far as you know, my disability, I'm visually impaired. Um, I'm classified as low vision because I have a rare genetic condition called ocular albinism, um, which leads me to have um, basically very blurred vision intense um, light sensitivity and nystagmus, which means my eyes constantly move and never stop. Oh, that's fun. Which is super fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Not at all a problem ever. Um, they also, the vision also gets worse with like my moods. So if I'm anxious, I'm blinder. Um, oh, fun. That's super just, fun. That, sounds yeah. like, that sounds like a real great superpower for you. Um, yeah, it really is. And so just what I like to ask all my guests too is how does that, how does having low vision um, impact just other than like the moods and stuff? How does it impact your day-to-day life? It impacts it a lot. I use a white cane for mobility. Um, so that like, while being really helpful for helping me get around without, you know, like walking into walls and stuff, um, definitely creates a lot of public stigma. So yeah, I kind of deal with a lot of people being stupid <laughs> toward me on a daily basis. Um, I also have a lot of accommodations in place for doing schoolwork and things like that. Um, and that impacts my day-to-day life pretty consistently. Um, you know, disability being something that I identify really fully with, it impacts pretty much everything I do. It's the lens through which I view the world, no pun intended. Um, so. Oh, I got yeah. it. I like the puns. I was right there with you. You're like, yeah, good. Thank awesome. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for sharing. We'll come back to you in, just a sec. Let's start with Sarika. Hello. Hi, I'm Sarika. I'm a junior at Harvard. I take she, her pronouns, and I'm majoring in computer science. I'm hoping to explore the intersections between computer science, technology, and disability in the future. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Because we need that so much right now. Like. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah. Um, as for my disability, I am paraplegic. Uh, I was born with a spinal tumor um, that basically paralyzed the lower half of my body. So I use a wheelchair to get around, a manual wheelchair. Um, and I also have surgically corrected scoliosis. Um, cool, me too. Lordosis. Hey. Oh, so cool. And lordosis too. Cool, yeah. awesome. Twins, awesome. Yay. Yeah. Um, it's always cool to meet people with similar conditions. So, yeah. yeah um, I would say that, as Emma said, my disability impacts my day-to-day life as well. I mean, quite literally, I can't get around without a wheelchair because I can't walk at all. Um, And also, as Emma said, I am very visibly disabled, so I face a lot of stupid comments and questions from people, a lot of stereotypes relating to wheelchairs. Um, A lot of ableism, hey? A lot of like... A lot of ableism. Everyday ableism. So it's so fun. It's yeah. it's the best. It's so great. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. And Melissa. 
Cool. Um, I'm Melissa. I'm also a freshman in Harvard, um, studying sociology. Um, and I also plan to go into disability rights law. Um, and I have Shokumari 2 disease, which is a form of muscular dystrophy. Um, so I use a motor as wheelchair to get around. Um, and it impacts my life pretty like a lot. Um, I can't walk, obviously. I use a motor as wheelchair. Um, I have PCAs who help me, and I also nice. use foundations. Nice. I am also a motorized power wheelchair user, and I'm sorry to say, but power wheelchair users are the best. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I think we're the best. No, we are um, indeed the best. Uh, see, see, Melissa knows. Awesome. No, no, I'm kidding. But um, thank you all so much for being here. I'm so excited to jump in, um, and to talk more with you about about the club you founded at Harvard. Now, now I Harvard's in Boston, right? Am I? Am I? That's because I was there, I was there, not at Harvard, but I was at Tufts doing a talk, like, just before the pandemic, like, 2020, February, like, 27th or 26th, I was at Tufts in Boston, and I remember thinking, oh, Harvard's here, like, that's so cool, like, I'm, I want to go see it, but we never did, because it was too far away, and it was a whole thing, but, like, I love that city. I understand, though, that I, from being there, Boston's really not super accessible though. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting juxtaposition for me because I also love Boston and like also Cambridge because um, like Harvard is right across the Charles River. So it's technically in Cambridge, but I say yeah. go to school in Boston because I feel it's like Cambridge cool, right? sounds very pretentious a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> being there, but also getting around can be very difficult. Like just the cobbled streets alone. And like, I yeah, stab myself in the stomach with my cane all the time. I found the, the cabs there to be, as a power wheelchair user, I found the cabs there to be particularly tough to navigate. And like, cause I had to stay, I didn't stay in Boston. I They booked me somewhere in like, I think it was, it was some tiny little suburb of Boston, like Amherst or something really like, far away not far but not close either and they they were like oh we only have two cabs and i was like you only have two what do you like what do you mean you only have two they're like oh well, there's this one company and there's another company and i was like you must have more than two you're boston like what so and i found it super inaccessible how do each of you find like just aside from going to harvard how do each of you find like daily daily accessibility in boston so personally as a manual wheelchair user it varies, but I would say in general, it's not great, um, especially in Harvard Square, which is where I spend most of my time. Um, there's, you know, narrow brick sidewalks that aren't paved very well. Um, there's some cobbled streets in, in Boston in general, as Emma mentioned. Yeah. Um, in the winter, they don't clear the snow very well on the sidewalks. And since they're narrow, I find myself having to wheel down the middle of the road, hoping a car's not going to hit me. Yeah, isn't, I that, isn't, that a, isn't that a fun game? We do it in Toronto, too. It's like, oh. cool, I can do this, but I might die because they didn't clear <laughs> the sidewalk. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Or like when they clear part of the sidewalk, so you get onto the sidewalk thinking that it'll be fine. And then you go halfway down the sidewalk and you can't go through. So you have to go all the way back down and then yeah. go on the road. It wastes a lot of time. Um, yeah, the accessibility is, it needs a lot of work. Yeah, for sure. And 
Melissa, my fellow power wheelchair using friend, how do you how do you feel about accessibility in Boston? Um, Emma and Sayaka basically said everything, you know, along with the uneven roads, um, and like the um pavements, like making it difficult to go on. Um, it forces me to go on the street, and I'm just like. I hope a car doesn't run me over because that would not be good. Um, along with that, you know, Boston also gets a ton of snow, and snow is like notoriously inaccessible. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, like at the time, I'm just like, can I go out today? Probably not. That's a problem. Um, so I don't love Boston's accessibility, but yeah. Yeah, no, I I'm I'm in Toronto, Canada, where like we're notoriously famous for our snow, so like. Yeah, I understand the perils and I can't wait for spring and I'm so excited. Um, but I, let's jump into like more of the accessibility at Harvard. And I want to talk about this club that you wonderful folks founded. I want to talk about, say the name for me again, because I'm, I'm going to mess it up this whole interview. What is it again? It's the Harvard Undergraduate Disability Justice Club. Yeah, it's, an, it's a mouthful. Um, so yeah, tell me all about this club and how it got started. Anyone? Also, just a note, we usually call it just Hudge um, because it's easier than Hard Undergraduate Disability Justice Club over and over again. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> now that I know yeah. that, we can definitely call it Hudge. It's just easier. Um, but founding it was, very interesting. Um, there was a like disabled student alliance group that existed um, a few years prior at Harvard, but it kind of dissolved and fell apart. Um, so there wasn't really anything um, for most of us on campus. And we kind of founded the club through weird word of mouth communication. Like <laughs> um, I had like a pre-college program thing called Visitas for Harvard, um, where I mentioned that I was interested in disability justice. And one of our co-founders was like, you should get lunch with me. I'm also interested in disability justice. And it was that kind of like um, casual communication that brought all of us together, which I thought was really interesting. Amazing. Um, that's, that's usually and, a lot of yeah. like, grassroots <laughs> disability stuff gets started just through conversation. It's always a little awkward to kind of have to go up to people and be like, you seem disabled. You want to talk about that? <laughs> Together over some food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we can get into the dining hall, which we probably won't be able to. Um, but <laughs> yeah, um, Sarika or Melissa, do you want to talk more about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so personally, the way I got involved in this was I was in the group chat for the old Dis Disabled Students Alliance because I'm a junior. Um, so I had been in it since I was a freshman, I think. Um, but it, it wasn't very active. And so eventually, someone in there mentioned that a few people were looking to found a dis disability justice club. It might have been Melissa. I, I don't remember, but something like that. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm interested. And so I got added to a um, iMessage, a text group chat, which we still have. Um, and eventually all the people who were interested in co-founding the club ended up in that chat and we started planning. It started out very small, but it grew faster than we anticipated. Nice. That's as, again, sometimes the smallest conversations have the biggest impact. So like, Definitely. that's really cool. 
And so Melissa, how how did you come to to be a part of Hajj? Yeah, um, basically just by word of mouth. It's really funny because um, the same co-founder that Emma mentioned and I got to know each other because um, we were trying to go to a friend's dining hall, but the ramp wasn't accessible, so she had to like physically push me up the ramp. And back then we like didn't know each other, so we were like, oh, bonding experience. <laughs> um, so and then um. Sarika and I got to know each other because I literally saw her um, wheeling around campus and I was like, hey, we're both wheelchair users. That's funny. Let's um, be friends. Yeah. So it was basically literally just like word of mouth. Um, and then like, as we made a group chat and we got to like know each other, um, that's how the club was founded. Nice, nice. That's awesome. And I, I'm, there's only three of you here today, but how many of you are there in the club? So we have a total of nine co-founders and then the numbers in the club, it's hard to estimate because we don't have like official membership, but on our email list, we have about a hundred people. Nice. Um, as for who's actively involved in the club, it could range from like 20 to 30 people approximately. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's still so, a fair number. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's, I think it's really important. Um, what do you think about like for each of you and I'll start with Sarika this time. Um, for each of you, what do you think about, like, what what makes you passionate about disability justice? Not just on campus, but just as a, as a person. For me, what makes me passionate about disability justice is, first and foremost, we are the largest minority group, yet we are so underrepresented in all aspects, in the public eye as well. People don't, for the most part, don't seem to know much about disability, and because of that, it, impacts our day-to-day -day accessibility, our legal rights and protection. Um, and just like personally, my day-to-day experiences, like even socially, the way I make friends, the way I make emotional or human connections with people, I'm so often excluded from that in addition to this larger systemic and structural inaccessibility. And so for me, disability justice is about fighting for a better and more just world largely defined by my own experiences and those of the other disabled folks i know but just for everyone i don't know as well who is facing even more barriers than i am because i can't imagine like with all the barriers i'm facing and living in the usa which is considered to be one of the most accessible countries but there are so many barriers that i think about india where my parents are from the conditions there are even worse and i'm yeah. and so it just i'm just really it, it drives me to fight for better conditions, seeing how long it took to get to even where we are today and how what we have today is the bare minimum, if even that. Yeah, I mean, I think the ADA is was a great start, but I feel like it doesn't have any teeth and I feel like it doesn't do enough. It only focuses on basically employment discrimination and it doesn't go way deeper into emotional discrimination um you know everyday ableism that we experience nobody really like it doesn't factor into a lot of things that i think disability justice speaks about but the law isn't there yet so and you know thinking about like you said Sarika, other countries that are have different policies and are worse off than the us or canada like we have a lot of work to do and i'm glad that there are the next generation, because I'm an old person now. So I'm glad that the next generation is taking up the cause and wanting to do that. Um, 
Melissa, did you want to share what, what you're passionate about regarding, um, what was my question? What did I ask? Uh, um, you, want to, you wanted to share like what disability justice means to you? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so, you know, growing up, I didn't really see anyone else with disabilities. So it just felt very alone and isolating, mm-hmm. um, you know, on a day-to-day level, like all I saw were like, the challenges I faced and the things that I couldn't do. You know, I couldn't play on the playground like everybody else. I could never be a doctor or a lawyer, as I was told. Um, and, you know, the way the people saw me, I felt like they saw my wheelchair first, they saw my shaky hand second, and then finally, you know, if at all, did they see me? Um, and so, like, when I found disability justice and when I first started, like, advocating for disability justice like that's when I realized how many other disabled people also like hope to live in a world that was made for us and so I'm so passionate about disability activism because I want to live in a world where people with disabilities you know can watch a movie and see ourselves as the main character we can go to school and have access to the same education and then like we can go anywhere we want we can basically choose any career path we want and like the world is actually made for us and doesn't hold us back yeah and it's a shame that in 2022 you know we're having conversations they were having 30 50 years ago about disability we're still having the same conversation and i love that we're all so passionate about it but i even talking about it for all of us i'm sure we're all like this is exhausting how many times do we have to say like i want a world that i can access like it's just it's sad that we're in a place in 2022 in like things are so far advanced but disabled people are still you know left behind and the pandemic has definitely proven this time and time again Emma what about you what about disability justice are you passionate about other than just like as a person yeah um so for me I really started to become passionate about disability justice when I was around um 14 uh prior to then I have had like the same vision, the same disability my entire life, but um, due to a lack of like just services and awareness, um, just kind of less of an individual failing on anyone's part, but more of kind of a systemic failure. Yeah, I didn't have access to um, services I needed, so I didn't use a white cane until I was fourteen. Um, even Which though is like orientation- the hardest time in your life to use a white cane because everyone's looking at you because you're fourteen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was kind of like a reckoning for me in a sort of way. Um, number one, it made me realize how different my life could have been and my perception of myself could have been if I had had access to services younger um, because there were just so many assumptions I made about myself. Like I'm unobservant or I'm lazy or I'm unable to get around places or I'm just incompetent as a human. Um, that could have been resolved if I had had access to services. So that kind of really drove home for me that there needed to be systemic change. Um, and also when I started using a white cane, even though I had already like been disabled, I started to kind of politically identify as disabled because yeah. it was so visible. So I yeah. needed to, you know, embrace that more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at that point I kind of found disability Twitter, um, which is great uh, <laughs> in some regards. And like fell in love with disability justice as a movement and the community. Um, and from then on, continue to, you know, work on advocacy, be compassionate about that. Nice. And I think it's so important, like 
that we have community and I, I, I <laughs> my views on disability social media are so up and down. Some days I love it and some days I'm like, oh no, there's like, we can, there are different things we should be fighting for. Like, yes, we should fight for this, but also can we stop fighting with each other about semantics and just try to fix the bigger problems, please? Um, that's how I feel. Uh, but I want to jump into some of the problems on campus. But before I do that, I wanted to ask both Melissa and Sarika, because you're women of color with disabilities, and I think we're, we rarely hear from people of color with disabilities, we rarely look to them to share stories. I want to understand, do either of you experience a higher sense, a higher type of ableism and racism intertwined together because you're disabled women of color? Either of you can go. I think for me, um, it's mostly just like the culture um, that I'm in as an Asian woman, because I feel like, especially being Chinese American, um, Chinese culture hasn't been traditionally accepting of disability. Um, and so, you know, my parents had to completely relearn the systems of ableism that they were taught when they were younger. And, mm -hmm. you know, along with that, like, I don't think they've ever overcome it. I don't think my um, other relatives have ever overcome it completely. Um, and so like growing up the narrative that I think I was told, you know, they were very supportive for me, but the narrative that I was told was like more or less along the lines of like, it would be so nice if you were cured. Um, so I think oh, that's great. So that's great for you. That's so awesome for you to hear that all the time. And you're like, great. I know, right? <laughs> um, and so I think it was very difficult to accept my identity as a disabled person and to find disability justice when that was an narrative that I was being told yeah. um, growing up. Yeah. Um, so that's just my opinion. Thank you so much. My experiences have been pretty similar um, as an Indian American woman. Um, so, you know, similar Asian cultures um, to what Melissa said. Um, my parents have also had to work a lot on unlearning the ableism they grew up with and that is common in Indian culture and society and they're they're still working on it um, and in I would say a concept that's common in Indian culture is at least in Hindu beliefs um, is karma and when I was born and my parents were seeking treatment for me um, my mom heard stuff from people in India I think like neighbors or distant relatives or someone and they would tell her that it was her fault that I was disabled because she must have bad karma and then also that maybe I had bad karma in a past life and so there was this kind of notion of one viewing disability as inherently bad and tragic and a moral failing and two placing the blame on the disabled person or yeah. their very immediate family so um, it was like a yeah. weird a weird mixture of like like the medical model of disability which says that you it's your problem that you're disabled and you need to be fixed but also this weird this like religious almost like you're you failed morally like you, something yeah. I, like like i've heard in other cultures and i've spoken to other guests who've said like oh you're cursed that's why your child has a disability and it's like well that's mm -hmm. not where did okay like, okay sure um so it's not the first time i've heard you know of other of other cultures um struggling with ableism and for both of you this is just a question that i that i was thinking about as you were talking how do you think that we bring discussions of ableism to other cultures who may not have heard that language before may not have understood disability justice from the western lens that we do 
It's a big question, I know. So you don't have to have like a succinct answer. I think it's really difficult, but I think it starts with the understanding that disability isn't inherently tragic and that having a disabled child isn't like a moral failure. Um, and like understanding that like instead of aiming to cure your child um, or, you know, promote the narrative that your child would be better if they were less disabled. Um, like accepting your child as who they are and understanding like what disabled people are advocating for and what a yeah. world that actually accepts disability would look like. Yeah. I agree. Um, especially because in other countries like India, um, where the accessibility is virtually non-existent in many places um disabled people are viewed as you know a burden on their family in some cases especially in rural areas and so kind of shifting their mindset and helping them understand that it's not the disabled person's fault um, as melissa said accepting them from who they are but rather it's the fault of the system and the society in which they are living and rather than working to either close their disabled child or relative off from society and blaming them look at the society in which they're living and the ways in which it's inaccessible and working to improve those because that will improve life for everyone um, not only the disabled people yeah totally thank you both for those perspectives i just felt it was important because you're disabled women of color and we never hear from you. I felt it was important to give you the floor and just let you share those experiences. So thank you. I want to jump into the culture of disability at Harvard, just as disabled Harvard students, like what is it like to be there in those spaces and anyone can go. It's very weird. Um, <laughs> it's like a very, weird environment to be in sometimes I think um I think generally speaking there's this weird mix of like either it's not expected that you will be there or like you got there because of your disability and sometimes both at once which is very confusing <laughs> um like I remember just once I had this event or like this moment um in one of our dining halls where like another Harvard freshman was telling me that it was so amazing that I got there, like from him. Oh. I was like, that's you too, I guess. <laughs> Great, awesome. <laughs> like, thanks. Um, yeah, but at the same time, I hear from other people being like, you know, don't you think what you've experienced, what you had experienced ableism wise in high school and things was worth it because it, you know, made you this passion you about here. disability justice. Yeah, got you here. I'm like, nope, not that either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I didn't go through all those trials of ableism and all that shitty stuff in high school to then come to Harvard and be okay with ableism because I'm at Harvard. Like, that's that. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, very. It's just very, very weird. Um, it's just. Yeah, I've like have experiences where I'm like writing essays about disability justice for classes while sitting in buildings that I know were like funded by former um, investors and presidents of Harvard who were eugenicists. Okay, um, that's so fun. Yeah. Awesome, cool. 
it's really great. Um, so it's just a very odd, like it feels almost contradictory at times. Yeah. Um, and I know I've spoke, I spoke to Judy human a couple months ago on the podcast and I almost died because it was so fun to talk to her. I was like, wow, you're Judy human. I, I barely spoke. If you listen back to that episode, I don't say words for like an hour. Cause I was like, Oh my God, you're Judy human. I spoke to her and we talked a little bit about her time at, at, um, at Crip Camp and like those movements. And I know at, at UC Berkeley, there was a, that's kind of where disability justice in, in America kind of was birthed there. Do you feel like, like, does Harvard have any, and Hodge have any chance of like reigniting a movement on the East Coast? For anyone? Um. I really hope so. Like either of you could speak more to it because I feel like I've talked a lot. Um, but certain, I know that a lot of um, college campuses are doing really like similar things and really incredible things. Like I think UMass has a really great um, movement right now about highlighting accessibility on campus and things like that. Um, and I just really hope we can be part of just a wider movement or on college campuses around the nation to kind of bring awareness of the chronic inaccessibility that is faced by disabled students and what that looks like. Um, so I hope that it's something that could be reunited, but I also hope that it's not unique to Harvard, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. I agree. I also really hope it can be part of a larger movement. And I think it may take time, um, but starting small, I'm already seeing the effects, like even as an individual um, being around, you know, a lot of people at Harvard, especially who are either very, just very privileged or very unaware um, in like in my extracurriculars, for example, or just like other people I get to know and educating them about the inaccessibility that I face, the work that Hudge is doing. And they're shocked, but usually I can get through to them, at least in some meaningful way. And they yeah. do, the ones who care, they do slowly try to, you know, be better about it and unlearn their ableism, at least in small ways. And I think that there's power in numbers. And as a club at a, a university that is, you know, very well known yeah. um, with a lot of presence and power and especially combining with groups from other colleges as well, like Emma said, I think that we could reignite a movement and I really hope we do. Awesome. And Melissa? I agree with that. Um, I think that obviously our club is just setting out. Um, and so like we have a long ways to go with um, like raising awareness and changing the inaccessibility of Harvard itself first. But you know, I would, I'm hoping that like our work along with the work of like disability activists on other campuses um, can like reignite a movement. So I want to get to some of the inaccessibility at Harvard. Can we talk about some of the spaces that are for you as disabled students who go there every day? What is like the most notoriously inaccessible spot that shouldn't be? Definitely the student dorms. Um, this is like not a well-known fact, but only two of the freshman dorms are accessible. What? I think it's insane. Um, and many of the upperclassmen dorms are only partially accessible. I was actually placed into one of them. And I was like, well, what is going on? This one's only like half accessible. It's complicated. Um, anyways, 
So that's definitely one of the most pressing issues. Um, I would say another thing is um, the accessibility office here at Harvard. You know, they're managing like over a thousand students um, and there are only like five staff. So they're extremely understaffed. They can't take care of the students' needs. They can't do like much of the things that are being requested of them. And it's yeah. just generally a terrible. Five staff to handle over a thousand students. That's, re- that's yeah. like ridiculous. I can't, wow. Um, also, when I went to school, like I was very lucky because I went to one of the only schools in the world at the time that had attendant care services attached to the res, the student, um, the dorms. So I got to have somebody there to do my like my PCAs, and it's kind of upsetting that at a school as well known as Harvard, this isn't a program that's that is well funded enough so that student peers can can be trained as PCAs to do care. Um, is that something? And I'm going to direct this to Melissa because I know you you mentioned you have PCAs. Um, is that something that you wish you had on campus? I wish, yeah, definitely. Um, I asked the accommodations office, accessibility office, about that last semester, and they were like, "Our students are not like able to do that. We don't hire students to do that." But on top of that, I have to say, Harvard only the upperclassmen dorms only have eight PCA suites, and they have they have way more than eight disabled students, and so that's why I was thinking like one of the only partially accessible ones because it was one of the only ones that had PCA suite left. And yeah. So I think that that's definitely like a major problem. So so just help me understand. So you, you because you have PCAs. You have to you you have to hire them yourself. Yes. And have them come to you and do like that's so stressful when you're trying to be yeah. a, like when you're trying to be a student and you're like you're a freshman, right? So like yeah. like I remember being a freshman. I couldn't organize myself out of a paper bag, let alone like try to manage staff plus manage school plus that's so much. And if Harvard had something like this, they would become one of the most like really accessible schools if that was put in place. So if any Harvard people are listening who have like money and influence and want to do something good for Harvard, <laughs> put in a PCA program, please, please. Um, um, anyone else want to tell me other notorious spots of inaccessibility? Yeah, so... Honestly, I feel like there's so much that it's hard to pinpoint one. But another one is that, as you know, the buildings at Harvard are all very old and they're big on historical preservation. They, you know, that sometimes gets prioritized over accessibility or loopholes are found um, relating to the ADA. Like, because Harvard has so many historical buildings, like a lot of them are exempt from the ADA until they're renovated. And because of this, um, renovations are not, being done as fast as they should sometimes like for example um one of the undergraduate libraries which is like you know the main library where people go to both like study and also like collaborate with other people on projects or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. like it the it, the entrance the inaccessible entrance that most people enter through is um in harvard yard uh which is where uh freshmen mostly live um and there is technically an accessible entrance, but it requires you to leave Harvard Yard, go up a really steep sidewalk, um, which 
hurt my back whenever I tried to go up it and then go up a ramp um, before you enter. And I had talked to them about putting an accessible entrance in Harvard Yard itself. Um, and I was like, can you maybe just adopt this one inaccessible entrance by putting in a stair lift because it leads down to an elevator. And I was told that one, the elevator is not too big. For, it's not big enough for all kinds of wheelchairs. And two, renovating part of the library would require them to renovate the whole, like all of the library. And then it would have to meet ADA standards. And they were planning on renovating the library in the future, but not at the moment. And so they just therefore didn't want to do that. Um, and I was told that, you know, library materials can be transferred to me in like a different location. But, you know, that was, well, that's not really a sufficient right. response. Yeah, no, it isn't. <laughs> and so I would say that, that library and in general, other academic buildings, which are technically accessible, but have really roundabout accessible entrances or that have lifts or elevators that keep breaking or are not well maintained are also a big accessibility issue. Well, and I mean, that given the history of Harvard, it's not surprising that they would want to, they would want to prioritize historical, like, blah, blah, over accessibility. Like, we hear that time and time again. And it's so fucking exhausting. Like, like, I'm really glad this building was built in 1830. But I need to get around now today. So we can figure out a way to, like, preserve some but renovate other parts. Can we do that, please? Like, I don't really care that it was it was built you know, 300 years ago, that's nice, but like, it doesn't affect me now. So I think, you know, we have to look at our, and I'm sure in 1832, when some of those buildings were around, I'm picking a year, but I'm, I'm sure like around that there were disabled students who needed to get around then too, they probably couldn't. Definitely. And in fact, um, this even factored into the renovation of the upperclassmen dorm houses. So um, a fair number of them have been renovated, but in the i guess a combination of working to do historical preservation also just not being fully aware that there are disabled students on campus and there are many of us and we have accessibility needs the renovations have not fully really met accessibility standards the way they should um for example as melissa mentioned even on the renovated um, houses they've placed barely any uh pca suites um they have accessible rooms but Many disabled students like me who don't need a PCA still need an accessible room with an attached accessible bathroom. And it seems that most of, of those accessible rooms don't actually have them. So it kind of defeats the purpose. And then I live in a PCA suite and the room for the PCA is just given to someone else as a single room. Um, and so then that puts students like Melissa who need a PCA in situations where there are not many PCA suites left and then they end up in a partially accessible house. And specifically for my house as well like melissa came to visit me one time and she was telling me about how the halls were really narrow because like she uses a motorized wheelchair i had never noticed it because my manual wheelchair is smaller and then i realized that that was true and i inquired about it and i was told that because of historical preservation reasons they couldn't alter the exterior of the building and so they just kind of alter the building in ways that were not ideal so that there's accessibility but not Full accessibility. full accessibility yeah so like, it's not, it's quite ridiculous you can't see my face but i'm i'm shaking my head back and forth during all these stories being like come on harvard you gotta do better like come on didn't the fictional l woods go there can't we like get reese witherspoon to like come and do a, a psa about why the student dorm should be accessible <laughs> can somebody get on this um 
Um, yeah. Um, some of the, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, no, go you. ahead. Please go ahead. Um, yeah, some of, um, like everyone was saying, some of the renovations have been very just nonsensical um, in some ways. Like I know um, in one of the upperclassmen houses, um, they were made to be partially accessible, um, but like elevators only go up to every other floor. What? For, Hang on. Yeah, for a reason we don't know. So, so like, what if you have to get, do. okay, what if you have to get to one of the floors it doesn't go to? Do you, is there, do you have to go, is there a roundabout way to get there or you just don't go there? You just can't be disabled on odd floors, I guess. I don't, <laughs> I really don't know. Um, I think we found the title of the episode right there. Uh, wow, that's, that, that's troubling in so many different ways. Um, wow. Uh, and so, you know, you, you've posed this as a question, but I want to ask, and, so, and a few of you have kind of alluded to this already, but you've kind of, the, you, the response to asking for accessibility seems to be kind of non-existent or lukewarm or like, oh no, we can't do it now, but later, like when you talk to administrators about Hudge and talk to administrators about like what you're trying to do, um, what, how have they responded? good thing that is happening is that they are agreeing to meet with us um, and kind of have open communication. So that as a basis is, a, is pretty good on them. Um, however, we get a lot of responses like you can't expect to change quickly along Excuse those lines. Excuse me, what? What? Hold on. Yeah. It's 2022. <laughs> yes, you can. I don't understand. What? Yeah. I am confused about the response. Um, but there's a lot of like, you can't expect an elevator in a day, that sort of thing, which can be very discouraging to hear as people advocating for greater accessibility. Um, because I think our demands have been pretty reasonable. Like, yeah. you know, we've asked for things like not for the freshman dorms as an entirety to be renovated, but for like one building to have an elevator. But why example. not? But why Why couldn't they? they Harvard has money, okay? <laughs> Harvard's like the biggest school. Everybody in the world knows where Harvard is and knows what Harvard is. Like, they have. Well, that's what that's what I'm saying. Can we not get a celebrity? You know what I You know what I would like to do. And I'm going to say this on the air. And I don't know if I'm going to make it happen. But I'm going to try. I have the email of Judy Human's assistant. I don't know if they still work with her, but maybe we pop them an email and get Judy to talk to you guys about this. And she like. She's she's a huge advocate for this kind of stuff. Maybe we see if, and I'm not saying she can. I don't know what her schedule is like, but and emailed her and be like, these are the issues. Can you can we talk to you? Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe, but I'd love to. Thank you. Put that olive branch out there. Yeah, that would be amazing. I definitely will because I think the stuff you you're all asking for is stuff that they the non-disabled student body takes for granted, and you deserve to have access fully to your education and you deserve to go to the fucking odd floors when you want to because <laughs> you're like you should be allowed it's it's just it it i knew we were going to talk about something like this today but still hearing it makes me like oh come on really this is where we are um on the flip side for any one of you what is the most successful place on campus 
Hey, Andrew, first of all, I'm so sorry. Can I just rant about something real quick? Oh, yes, I'm ready. Do Thank it. you. Um, okay, so in the meeting with administrators last week, um, basically Harvard is lifting their indoor mask mandates. And since I'm high risk, I asked them, like, does this mean that you can instate a virtual option for disabled students? And I said, you know, I am high risk. I could literally die if I got COVID. Yeah. And their response was, no, we can't do that. But have you tried talking to your professors individually? And I'm like, is this a joke? Come on, come on, come on. Okay, so we need to talk to Reese Witherspoon. We need to like tweet her and be like, listen, Reese Witherspoon, Judy Human, they're not in the same vein at all, but we need some celebrities on this to be like, what, what the fuck, Harvard? Like, so awesome. Sayakas talked about how with the current fire safety plans at Harvard, like if there were to be a fire, she would literally get stuck and possibly die. And their response was, the fire department is doing their best. That is the administration that we're talking to right now. No, 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 no. That makes that angers me to no end. Yeah, no, literally the, the current fire safety plan for disabled students is to shelter in place, but there's no communication ongoing. There was a fire alarm uh, the previous semester and I didn't know what was going on. I had no communication. Um, I had to call people on my own until someone picked up and even then I didn't know what was going on. And so I brought this up and like Melissa said, um, it seemed that I, I, I asked, like, if we could have, you know, like, stair chairs or slings and have adults trained who could carry yeah. disabled students up because, like, I live on the second floor. And basically, I was told that the fire department didn't want them to be trained, so they'll, like, talk to them again. But it, I, I just got the feeling that this wasn't going anywhere. And I was even asked, if we do nothing, should we at least improve the communication protocol? And I was like... So you're telling me you might do nothing and Great. that's very disappointing. Great. That's really that's really awesome for us who could die in a fire or by COVID. Way to go, Harvard. Like, yeah. no wonder you started Hudge. No wonder you were like, fuck, we got to do something. Because like, wow, that makes me, like, I'm not surprised. Okay, literally we were talking about this and our general consensus was we came to Harvard like seeing it with like rose colored glasses and now that we're here we're like they are literally admitting us for what diversity poison and they're sacrificing us yeah what? yeah you're the sacrificial lambs for them to be like oh we tried though they're disabled we let them in though aren't we great like fuck no i don't agree with it no 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 um <laughs> my next question was gonna be what's the most successful spot on campus but i'm just fucking mad for you like that they literally told you that you could burn in a fire or die of COVID. And we did our best. Like, come on, that's horrible. Wow. Yeah, it's a very painful experience for, um, I feel like this could be relatable, but I don't want to speak for anyone else. But um, for me, it was, you know, a lot of the work that I did in high school and my admissions essay and things like that were focused on disability justice and disability advocacy. Um, so I think, you know, the sad thing for me is that Harvard, like as a visually impaired person for classroom accommodations has been probably the most successful place I've been, but it's still not good. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm trying to sum up what I'm feeling, but it's just a lot of like... Oh, just let the rage out. Go on. It's good. <laughs> I thought it would be, you know, 
better because they admitted us knowing that you know we have this platform of advocacy accessibility so you'd think that they would admit us being proud of what they can provide for disabled yeah. students um but that's not the case which so is very disheartening yeah again they wanted to use you for brownie points and to make themselves look good be like look what they're doing look look at how inclusive we are yeah yeah but then when it comes down to brass tacks oh sorry we can't do anything for you that makes me as a disability advocate and who i'm somebody who fought so hard at my my school to get accessibility and i was very privileged because where i went was carlton u in ottawa canada so it was the only school in canada and like i was saying north america at the time that had attendance but we also had tunnels throughout the whole school so we never had to go outside in the winter which as a power wheelchair user was my favorite thing in the in the whole world and didn't have to go outside for months because you could just travel through the school via the tunnels and like I would I assumed naively like before I realized that my school was the only one in the world that had this why don't other schools have tunnels like why the fuck doesn't Harvard the one of the most well-known schools in the world have a tunnel system why like why not that would make your lives all of your lives so much easier as students there it really would but we just get so many excuses whenever, like in the meeting, we talked about um, physical reno accessibility renovations. Um, and one specific ask we had was the building in Harvard Yard, um, where like the student like public service programs are run out of, be yeah. renovated because it doesn't have an elevator and a lot of programs are run out of the second floor. And we were told that they can like look into it and whatnot, but that it would like in, in putting an elevator shaft in would displace some student programs and how that was a like temporarily and how that was no 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 and no, like no, no what i i think emma mentioned earlier that we can't build an elevator in a day which is not something we asked for anyways um but it's just like we we got excuses for so many things and going back to your question about the most accessible spot on campus we were told that it's difficult to do like renovations of multiple buildings at once but this whole time like since before the pandemic they had been working on building a new science and engineering building in alston which is a part of boston right across the river from us um because they were running out of space for like computer science and engineering programs and they wanted to move all of them to that building and they built it and like spent a lot of time and money on it and i would i was gonna say that that's the most accessible spot on campus for me because you know it's modern it's new um but that shows that like yes they can do multiple renovations or building yeah. projects at once they have the capability to make accessible features if they try but also that does not have accessible door openers on all the classrooms and the doors are very Come heavy on. so you know it's brand new and it's still not fully accessible and you know that's not even surprising yeah like like so cool you don't have to sit in an old building where eugenesis plotted our desk but you have to sit in a building that is partially accessible but I'm like oh wow yeah. wow it just puzzles yeah go ahead sorry melissa hey um for me the most accessible spot the spot that i usually go to are the harvard libraries um but then like what's funny is that usually the houses that upperclassmen live in have their individual libraries i usually go to libraries to study but then for the house that i was placed in the library is inaccessible and they basically told me like, 
if you need books, you can just get them elsewhere. And I'm like, but I'm going there to study. So it's like, yeah, like, what are you talking about? Like, the <laughs> yeah. library. Like, oh, wow. Wow. And also, like, when I was in, in school, I loved the library. It was my favorite place to go because I could study, but also I could flirt with all the people that I wanted to, like, hang out with later. So I, like, I liked the library when I was a student. I definitely did. Um, Emma, what about you? Um, so for me, um, as far as mobility, um, I think the most successful place for me is probably just, I would say my dorm building, like I'm in one of the accessible, um, freshman dorms and it's pretty easy to navigate for me. They have an elevator, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, those <laughs> good. Uh, okay. Awesome. Um, and if you, if each of you could tell an incoming freshman, like the truth about disability and accessibility at Harvard, I mean, you kind of laid it bare now in the, in our interview today, but if you could give them like one honest piece of like, here's what it's really like to be a disabled student here, what would you say? Honestly, this is a little dark, but I would say- I'm ready. I like dark, go. I, I would say just like, don't go <laughs> or if you really really want to go then look into accommodations and accessibility where more way more than i did i looked only into um like could they provide me an accessible dorm room um which by the way was in the same dorm building that emma and melissa live in now because it's one of the only two accessible freshman dorm buildings which i did not know because harvard told me they don't keep stats on which how, or how many accessible rooms they have and so I was like, okay, perfect. They can accommodate my like housing needs and they have like a, a van service. Um, and also I had seen um, on the cover of, I think like the Harvard Gazette, um, there was a student in a wheelchair featured on the cover. He's one of our co-founders. And I was like, oh, look, there's another student in a wheelchair. I can go to Harvard. And then now talking to him about this, he's like, I was so mad that they put me on that cover, but then Harvard is so inaccessible and it really does yeah. feel like Emma mentioned that they admit us for diversity points. And so, yeah, my, my piece of advice would be if you really want to go look into accessibility accommodations very, very carefully and don't be afraid to fight for what you need because they're not going to give it to you easily. Yeah. Yeah. Melissa? I would say like definitely be aware of how inaccessible Harvard can be because I think that the general public perception of Harvard is like, oh, it's Harvard. It must be so great. That's what I thought when I, you know, when I was all excited to talk to you today and then like, hearing this stuff, I'm like, oh, fuck, what, like, wow. Right, right. And that's the perception that I had going in. I was like, well, I got into Harvard. I have to go. Like, that's the only logical option. And now that I'm here, I'm like, if I looked into what the accessibility, the accommodations, um, the students, disabled students experiences at Harvard. Like, I don't know if I would have still gone. And so I just think like, don't be blinded by your perception of what Harvard, of what you think Harvard is. Like actually look into like how they treat disabled students. Yeah, cause it sounds like there's a whole fuck ton of ableism that you guys are experiencing that no one's talking about because they want to have this image of look at us for Harvard. Like that's disheartening to say the least. And like, I will champion what you're saying forever and ever because it's just it's it should be the most successful place 
in the world, along with being the most notable, one of the most notable universities in the world. Like, what? Wow. Um, it's funny because they actually wrote an article about me a few months ago and they've been like posting it like on all of their websites being like, look at this, we're such an amazing disabled student. And, and then like, as soon as I ask for anything, they're like, no, we can't do that. And so and I'm you're like, like, cool, but you told me that I could die if I get, if I get called. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, wow, wow. I'm so sorry that they're using you in such a ableist way. Harvard, fuck, do better, please. Wow, Emma. Um, for me, I think it's slightly less dark, <laughs> um, but this just kind of speaks to the breadth of different experiences with like disability. Um, but for me, Harvard, as compared to other places I've been as from like, oh no, um, has been one of the more accessible places I've been. Um, but obviously my needs are very different, so, but for me, I think what I would advocate for an incoming freshman to do right away is to find, like, look up accommodations and your specific accessibility right away. Because obviously, such first breadth of experiences that it's not really enough to look at, like, you know, what's the experience of a disabled student at Harvard? It's kind of, you more need to figure out what your specific experience is going to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and also... I think it's really important and what was really impactful for me was finding a community of other disabled people on campus um, like that that I think made a world of difference for me and made it like this experience that I thought could be fairly isolating much less so um, for me personally I haven't had a community of this size of like disabled people to talk to before especially people who are interested in advocacy specifically um, and that has made my experience a lot better. But. I'm so I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad at the very least you all have found each other to have community with. Because believe me, when you get out of that the university bubble that you're in right now, disability community is hard. And sometimes we're not kind to each other. And sometimes it's really tough to like to 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 manage all of our own like lateral ableism within community. So I'm so glad you found each other and I would urge you all to keep that bond really strong because they're long lasting and they're important. So that's awesome. Um, but I wanted to ask you all, what are you like, what is Hotch have coming up? What are, what are like some events, some things you're doing? For anyone. So as Emma mentioned, we have a disabled comedy night coming up soon in a few weeks, hopefully. Um, that will be really fun. And then um, we, last semester and this semester, we've had various roundtables on different disability related topics, so just informal discussions um, to kind of both share our experiences as disabled students and also brainstorm solutions to certain problems we face on campus regarding accessibility. And then this semester, what we've started doing is we have four working groups. Um, each group is working on a different project. And so our four working groups are a disability studies campaign. We're pushing to have a disability studies program and curriculum and classes and eventually one day a department. Wait, you don't um, have a disability studies department at Harvard? 
no, we don't really have disability studies classes in general, which is whoa. really unfortunate. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, All right, well, yeah then... no, that's one of the <laughs> major things that we're pushing for. Because, you know, I feel like that was really sad to me coming onto campus as someone who wants to pursue disability justice as like a yeah. career path. Um, it was like, of course, Harvard is going to have disability. That's what I thought. Classes. I was like, of course they would, because it's Harvard, right? Like, of course. Well, that strengthens my yeah. resolve to get you in touch with Judy Human and just see if I can, you guys can start a conversation and talk to each other. Even for like, when I talked to her, she gave me 30 minutes of her time to do a, a podcast. And I was like starstruck because I had just seen Crip Camp and I was like the most nervous I'd ever been. So, but she said yes to me. So I think, I, I hope she can find, can find the time because that would be great to push that forward. Um, and wow, Harvard, get a disability studies program. Wow. Literally, um, it's, it's really disheartening that they don't have a disability studies program. Um, and there was an effort a few years ago to push for it, but all the students leading it graduated and then that campaign died. And so we're hoping to revive it. Um, and that's, yeah, that's one of our working groups. And the other ones are, um, making the public more aware of Harvard and accessibility, both at Harvard and beyond, like on social media, um, and then pushing for more physical and structural accessibility um, and creating a disability center, and then helping to reform the accessible education office since it is very understaffed um, and creating disability justice trainings for faculty and staff and like um, the adults who live in the dorm. Awesome. And I think that's so important. Uh, and then, and then, uh, anything else coming up? Either any of you want to share any any final parting thoughts? We also have an event with the One Employee Coalition um, on March twenty first. Awesome. Uh, this is <laughs> this will be coming out after that, but. Does anything is there anything else coming up after that that we can highlight? Um, I don't think we have anything specific planned that I'm aware of for after that. But um, the following semester, we're gonna you know continue to work and have a lot of events that will be announced soon. So you know, if especially if you're at Harvard, um, join our email list. Like follow what we're doing. There's gonna be more. Yeah. And, but I think, you know, all the events you're trying to do and all the stuff you're trying to do is so valuable. And I'm so sorry that Harvard is fucking as inaccessible as you say it is, because I would have thought otherwise. And I want to thank you all so much for sharing your story today. Is there anything, any last thing you want to share, each of you, before we go? Um, I think for me, um, I'd just like to reiterate about kind of I feel like this problem is by far not unique to Harvard. Like we're focusing on our campus in accessibility because it's the place that we live um, and it's what we're faced by daily. Um, but in, like chronic inaccessibility of this kind is something that's rampant you know, around the US and um, obviously is worse other places around the world. But I think that the eventual goal of the club and the organizing that we're doing is to try to spread awareness about this inaccessibility, generally speaking, not specifically only to Harvard. Yes. Um, and, you know, we really hope that this can not only 
reform some of the things that we've discussed about Harvard, but, you know, create reform throughout the nation. Anyone else? I would say very similar to what Emma said, echoing that this is a problem, um, not just at Harvard, but just other, but also other colleges, and also not even at just colleges. This is reflective of the larger systemic inaccessibility in the U.S. and in the world at large. It's something that people just really need to be more aware of, and I am hopeful that we can help educate people and bring this awareness to other people, whether they be at Harvard or at another college or just in general, um, because it's something that people have been unaware and ignorant of for too long, and this needs to change because it's long overdue. Completely agree. Couldn't agree more. I think there's such a lack of knowledge about ableism on college campuses and just in general. You know, um, I'm just talking about this, but I feel like if any other group like got the level of discrimination that we've experienced here on here in college, like there would be an outcry. There would yeah. not be tolerated. And so I just feel like disabled students matter, our rights matter, our lives matter, and we deserve to be heard. Yeah. And you're completely I completely agree with everything each of you have said. Thank you so much for, for shedding light on how shitty Harvard's accessibility is. Um, to be honest, I, I'm kind of appalled that they would be this bad. Um, and how can the people listening, how can they, if they want to follow your movement, if they want to follow Hudge from afar or from Harvard, but on social media, how do they do that? Um, so we are on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Harvard Hudge. Um, so that's at Harvard and then H-U-D-J. I'll put it in the chat as well. Yeah. Um, and I'll post it in the show notes. And, and what I'll do is yeah, I'm going to make a tweet right now. I'm mm-hmm. going to also tag, uh, I'm going to tag Judy Human's Twitter and Judy Human's Instagram to be like, you should talk to them, Judy. See if you like, because I think the more we get big names like that on this, the more this could change. And she is such an amazing advocate and somebody that I definitely want to connect you with because I'm sure she has, she knows some people who know some people. So I would love to connect you with her. But but I would like to say as somebody who kind of put Harvard in the same steed as we all do, like, wow, it's Harvard. I'm so sorry you've all had to go through this and thank you so much for sharing kind of the, the darker inaccessible side of Harvard. Um, and I hope any administrators listening that are listening to this and that, that stumbled on my show, um, I hope you take what Sarika, Emma, and Melissa have said today to heart and try to find some funding. Try to have, like, if you can't find funding, do a fundraiser. Like, get those fat cats with big pockets to do a fundraiser for accessibility at Harvard. Like, why can't we do that? So I hope that you're all listening and I hope that anyone who is looking to go to Harvard or was looking at Harvard as the ivory tower that we make it out to be is looking at it with 
less rose-colored glasses and more more like, oh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, but thank you, thank the three of you so much, and thanks so much to Hudge for wanting to come on my little show, and thank you, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, thank, thank you. you. We really appreciate this. Um, oh, it was such yeah, a pleasure. And if any if any other members want to come back on anytime. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark. From me, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, at Andrew Gerza underscore, or you can follow my website, www com to find out more about what I do and of course you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode for a minisode or for a guest spot we'd love to hear from you Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.